Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18-25. through 25. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he entrusted himself to the, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, hello. My name is Ian, and I am the pastor here. We are in our 10th month as a church, approaching our one-year anniversary, and uh, we are going to throw a giant party for that, so hope you'll stick with us. Um, So this morning, we have uh, a passage, and even like when Brenda started reading, just that first word, just, it really grabs you, and it really kind of makes you turn your head and say, what? So what we have here are sermon notes. No different from what, you know, I have some notes up here, a couple outlines and some stuff just to remind myself to hopefully not forget anything during the service. Now, what's different about these sermon notes is that, you know, back in the day, people were a little more frugal than we are. Um, I just went and bought 400 sheets of paper today at the grocery store. So I had that. This piece of paper had to be reused several times. And it was reused by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Now, if you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, you can go literally visit his grave, which is like a mile from here in the Princeton Cemetery. Jonathan Edwards wrote down his sermons, a couple of sermons on Isaiah and Ezekiel, you know, all good stuff. But on the back of this piece of paper was the bill of sale, a receipt, not for an item, not for a thing. You know, when you go to the grocery store and you get your list of things that you bought, You know, you get the Oreos because they're there and you're going to eat them later, even though you told yourself you weren't going to buy them, all that kind of thing. But on this bill of sale was the sale of a young girl, 14 years old, named Venus. Jonathan Edwards, on a receipt for the sale of a human being, wrote a sermon And I don't know about you, but that raises some questions for me. And as we read in 1 Peter this morning, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, oh, maybe, maybe the Bible does condone slavery. Maybe, maybe I have to wrestle with that. And so this morning, I just want to put this tension before you because I think there's something much more beautiful going on here. I think there's something much more substantial, but this morning we are met with these sort of brutal realities that in our world and in our country, we stand on ground 
many of it taken from indigenous people and built on the back of slaves ripped from their homes from Africa. That's the ground we stand on. The, the, the middle school that we are meeting in is named for a man named John Witherspoon, who also owned slaves. And so this morning, as we get into the text, I'm, I'm so hopeful and confident this morning because I think we're going to walk away from this place with a better understanding of the beauty of Jesus, a better understanding of how to approach difficult subject matters like this. But we're not there yet. And so I simply want to lament. And I want to lament three things here this morning. And I just invite you just in just a posture of sort of joining your heart with mine. Would you first of all lament that we are the inheritors of a faith, of an American Christianity, of people that have used verses like we just read in 1 Peter, people have used them as weapons to dehumanize, to endorse their own understanding of an unjust order? Would, we, would you just say we lament? Our heart breaks for this. Would you join me in lamenting the way that the, the impact and the aftermath of slavery still impacts our societal structures, still impacts the way that people deal with one another some 160 years after an emancipation proclamation? Would you join me in just lamenting the world that we live in as we've inherited it? And friends, I'm not saying you're responsible for this. But what do you lose in confession? What do you lose in saying that we were born into this world? Jesus would say that you gain everything. Would you join me in lamenting that today, as we speak right now, there are more people enslaved in our world than at any time prior in history? That this idea of slavery is not just an American problem that we have, to, for a large part, ignored, unrepented of, but it is a problem that persists in our world. In the fourth century, a bishop named Gregory of Nyssa preached a sermon that was sort of countercultural for the time. And he just said, Look, we know that we've all been born into this world as it is, but it's just not right for one person to own another human being. It's not okay. And that sermon for Gregory of Nyssa was not met by people saying yes and amen. Oh, we're so glad somebody finally said it. It was more met like with quizzical looks and people sort of trying to figure out what he's talking about. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy named Rowan Williams, talks about how the slavery market in the first century, in the time where we get Peter's words from, was like going to the supermarket. It was a fact of life. It was a, it was a place of commerce and engagement. It was just part of the world that they lived in. But what he talks about is that the Christian revolution the Christian revolution, as we'll see, of God giving of himself so that he might create a people who live out of the beauty of what he's done. 
lit what he calls a long fuse towards the undoing of slavery, towards the sort of modern uh, perspective that we carry in our day and age. You see, when Brenda started reading, I, I, even that initial, like, just that command sent, slaves, do this, like, I, I just had this kind of visceral reaction, and I don't know if I'm alone in that. But, but we have that reaction, not because we are somehow more enlightened, but because we stand on the shoulders of people who have been wrestling with this idea over the long arc of history. And so this morning, what I want to do, as we've started and just said, this is where we are, is I want to help you read these passages, I think, a little better. And then I also want us to see how these passages, even though we are not slaves here this morning, meet us where we are. So the first thing, from the biblical perspective, God is on the side of those enslaved. The, the story that was foundational for the people of God is the Exodus story. A people crying out, groaning under the hard labor that Pharaoh has put them under for 400 years. And as they cry out to God, Exodus tells us that God hears them. And he comes, and through a series of plagues, through a series of encounters between the God of the universe and the Pharaoh who proclaimed to be a God, God redeems and liberates the people of Israel, parting the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry land. They even take a bunch of riches from Pharaoh with them. I mean, even Pharaoh paid reparations. But as they leave the land of Egypt... They go in a moment because of God's salvific work from being slaves to being a free people. And you know what the first thing God does? And this is just a little aside. The first thing God does on a mountainside, on the other side of slavery, he says, keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day. And he's saying to this group of people, you used to be actual mechanisms in an imperial system of production. No longer. You are no longer slaves. You are no longer, your, your worth is no longer accounted for by what you can produce. One day a week, you will stop. Because to stop and to be is the humanity that God is calling us towards. And so the story begins with a group of slaves, the descendants of Abraham, drawn out from slavery by the mighty power of God. And then we get these instructions throughout the rest of what's called the Pentateuch, these early books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those books, God keeps giving instructions for the way that slaveholders are to deal with their slaves. And friends, I know, I know even that word to us and our modern sensibilities, I know it just sort of strikes a, a discordant tone. But in these moments, God begins a subtle revolution. Because in the ancient world, the understanding was if, if somebody was a slave, you, you could do what you want with them. But Leviticus says, no, no, there are rules for the way that you deal with one another. 
There's this acknowledgement that that person is made in the image of God. Deuteronomy 6 keeps telling the people, remember, you were slaves. Deuteronomy 15, remember, you were a slave in Egypt. That's why I'm calling you to behave in this way. Deuteronomy 24, remember, remember, remember. The arc of the Bible is calling people back to their fundamental story. The fact that they were once slaves, that God has drawn them out and called them to a new reality, a free and salvation. And this begins to form the foundation of the biblical story. And as we fast forward forward several hundred, a couple thousand years, we arrive at where Peter is writing in the first century in Roman society. Now, Roman slavery was a little different than what we understand as American chattel slavery. And notice what I said there. I'm not qualifying it, saying it's better. Slavery is always wrong. Always, always, always. I'm going to show you what the Bible is beginning to say about that shortly. But there were some differences. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, thought that slavery was a part of the natural order. He was sort of a pre-Darwinian. He just, his, his basic idea was that some people were just destined to be slaves. And he had some thoughts about the human intellect that sort of illustrated that. But the differences in first, uh, first century slavery society, first of all, race played no role. So in, in opposition to what happened as people began to steal and pillage people from the African continent. Race played no role in this sort of slavery. Education was encouraged. Many household slaves in the Roman Empire were teachers, were tutors. Many slaves carried out highly skilled and sensitive functions for those who were their masters. Slaves could own property You may recall that in our country, slaves not only were property, they weren't even fully human, three-fifths of a person. That should make us weep. But slaves in this society in the first century could own property. No laws prohibited public assembly of slaves. And the majority of urban and domestic slaves could expect to be emancipated by the time They were 30 years old. Slavery was an economic system. It helped people become citizens. Again, I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but it was part of the system as they had received it. Now, the New Testament itself contains no explicit condemnations of slavery. So the passage like we just read in 1 Peter is indicative of what we find in the New Testament. No explicit condemnations of slavery. However, the first words that Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel, when he gets up to to sort of declare his kingdom manifesto, he pulls open the, the scroll of Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. Subtle revolution. The book of Philemon is written from the Apostle Paul to a slave owner. Philemon's slave Onesimus has run away. And during his time of being away from his slave owner, who is Philemon, the one the letter is addressed to, during this time, Onesimus has joined in the work of Paul. He's worked with the apostle in spreading the gospel. And so Paul writes him a very short, a very subtle, yet a very direct letter. It's one of those books in the Bible you can read in like 30 seconds. There's only one chapter. And Philemon says, perhaps, or Paul says to Philemon, perhaps this is the reason that he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever, but wait, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then Paul says later, could you prepare a room for me? Because I'm going to come see you. Paul is saying, perhaps he was taken away, you know, perhaps he ran away for a while so that you might have him back. But here's the subtext. Why don't you go ahead and emancipate him? Because, as Paul will write in Galatians chapter 3, there is no longer a Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And friends, this morning, I can tell you two things very plainly. First of all, it is true that there is no explicit condemnation. Never in the Bible is there a chapter and verse where you can point to and say, that's where God says, slavery is always wrong. But what we find throughout the scriptures, and this is where you see sometimes the violence we see depicted in the Old Testament, some of the things that we find unseemly, is that God is not interested in working in the world as it should be. God doesn't wait for us As we sang, he loves us as he finds us. And so God is willing to work within the structures, even how broken they may be, of our world in order to reveal his heart to us. And what we see is this progressive unfolding of the beautiful plan of God. From the Old Testament, we see that God hears the cries of the slaves and the oppressed and the broken. From the mouth of Jesus himself we hear, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. I have come to proclaim freedom to the captives. This is who God is. And what we see in the witness of the New Testament, in the aftermath of the cross of Jesus as he gives his life, is that God is creating a new humanity where there is no more slave or free. Yes, it is true that the New Testament contains no explicit condemnation. But the unraveling of slavery was born out of the seed of the work of Jesus Christ and the launching of his church. Our sense, our modern sensibility that it is always wrong to own another human being comes from the fact that we were born into a world 
that though it denies and though it discounts the Christian influence upon our world, we are inheritors of a world that was born out of this great witness. And so what I want to do today as we look at this, and friends, I know there are more questions. One of the great theologians, Howard Thurman, 20th century writer, he talks about his experiences with these texts. He says, when I was older and half through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of summer vacation. With a feeling of great temerity, I asked my great-grandma one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. What she told me I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let, I'm going to use his words, a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used his text as something from Paul. And at least three or four times a year, he used this as a text. And this is from Paul in Ephesians. Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we are slaves. And how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. And friends, what I want to do today is to help us see the difference between God's will and our reality. Because we can look at the world as it is and just kind of have this deterministic conclusion. And some people do this, right? Whatever happens is a manifestation of God's will. Like we see this often. It's, it's kind of that it is what it is mentality. And, and it sort of becomes kind of pantheistic in a way, right? Like any of you ever prayed for a parking spot? And then somebody right up front pulls out. You're just like, man, it must have been God's will for me to park close. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with this kind of gratitude, this kind of daily, like, sort of acknowledgement of God, him, you keeping him in your reality. But more than likely, somebody just happened to be leaving at the same time. And if you're an able-bodied Christian, able to walk, perhaps the Jesus perspective is that you park far away so some other grandma who might have also been praying for that spot would have received it. That's, for you. That's between you and Jesus. But what I want to say today is that though, like Howard Thurman so viscerally exhibits, and, and again, 20th century writer talking about his great-grandmother, that's how not far we are away from this stuff. As much as this, this perspective puts us in kind of a conundrum, what I want to do is just show you what Peter's doing here. So if we back up from the passage that we read, Peter says in verse 13, beginning uh, in chapter 2, he says, For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as of supreme or as of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. Look at what he says. As servants, the word here is doulos, which is also translated sometimes in the New Testament, slaves. As servants of God, live as free people. And he says this to the whole congregation, which is beautiful. 
Yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. He goes on in verse 18. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Not only those who are kind and gentle, but those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you, if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. And if you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure and do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called. Because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. It is incredible that the only people in the congregation that Peter relates their status in society to are the slaves, and he relates them to the suffering of Jesus. In Peter's mind, these people who are amongst the lowest caste in society, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, are directly correlated with the suffering of Jesus Christ. Peter, this man who thought it such an honor to follow Jesus, such an honor to give his life for him, that when he was crucified by the same empire that he says to honor, when he was crucified by them, he said, do not crucify me right side up. I don't deserve to die in the same way that my Lord Jesus died for me. Peter equates the suffering of Jesus with the weakest in the church. And he says to them, look, I know you're suffering. You can't, this is not an upwardly mobile society. This is not, there's nothing you can do about it. This is your lot in life. And yet, in the same way, Jesus Christ suffered for you. Now, hear me on this. This is not me saying you should pursue all the suffering you can find. Those of you who have lived some life and, you know, we've all had our different stories can, can kind of say and bear witness to suffering finds us, right? Like life, life is hard. But rather that this is the wonder of God's power and this is what Peter is saying to us. This is the perspective he's inviting us to today. This is the incredible thing is that he takes the worst that humanity has to give, things like slavery, things like ownership of one person over another, things like a cross, a, an instrument designed to torture and humiliate, God takes those worst ideas that we can divide, the ideas that are literally from the pit of hell, and he takes them and he makes them a manifestation of his incredible love for us. And this is what Jesus does. He doesn't work in some like imaginary space that is somehow distant and distinct from our world. He comes right into the middle of it. He comes in the first century when the Romans had devised this device for execution. And he takes this symbol, which, which in polite Roman society, they wouldn't even talk about a cross. They wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. The emperors would often display people along the roads and just to, just to show people what you got if you messed with Rome. But elite Romans, they, they just turn their eyes. They wouldn't talk about it. But Jesus takes this kind of device and says, on this I will manifest the fullness of my love for you. And what Peter is doing here is he's inviting us to see this. 
He's inviting us to see that through these broken systems in our world, Jesus is revealing his love for us. Can you put up the picture of the magic eye? Is anybody actually ever able to see anything on these? Better question, because I was born in 1984. Those of you who are under 30, do you even know what this is? This is called a magic eye. Before, I don't know. I mean, I had video games, but before we had the kinds of TVs you had, I don't know how much older I am than you. We had this for entertainment. These are, there are patterns built into this that sort of work as optical illusions that if you stare at it, and you stare at it in just the right way, an image, a 3D image begins to appear off the page. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know if something hopelessly broken in me. I have never seen an image. I have stared and I have stared, and this will be a sweet movie reference for those of you who know it, but I've never seen the sailboat. One person got it. And friends, I think that this is what Peter is doing as he brings us to the cross of Jesus here in 1 Peter. Greg Boyd uses this image as how he began to understand how God works in the world. How could it be that Jesus has come to proclaim liberation to all the captives, and yet Paul is selling, or Peter here is telling slaves to be in their place? How could it be? And what Boyd describes is the magic eye of looking at Scripture. And this, this is a process that we, some of your seminary neighbors that are sitting next to you, could explain to you. It's called hermeneutics. It's the way we interpret the text. It's the way we understand it. It's understanding that this is reading somebody else's mail, that we are reading something from a first century culture that is much more Eastern than Western. It's from a different language, and so we've translated it, and has different cultural values and expectations. But as we sort of behold the magic eye, Greg Boyd says, the God who bore our sin and our God-forsaken judgment had always been bearing the sin and God-forsaken place of his people. The God who reflected the grotesqueness of our sin back toward us by taking on the guilty, God-forsaken semblance in the process of revealing himself had always been reflecting this grotesqueness. Let me translate that for you. What Boyd is saying is that in those moments where the Bible seems like, really? Like you read in Joshua and some of that stuff is just like, that's, that's awful. Is that God? Is that the same God we see revealed in Jesus? And the answer is yes. Because just as Jesus bears our sin on the cross, he reveals who God is fully. And God didn't become the sin-bearing God once Jesus ascended to the cross. God has always been the sin-bearing God in our world. He has always been willing to take our finite expectations of who God is and to use them as a means of revelation. And so as we gather here this morning, I think Peter is inviting us, because he turns directly from these instructions to slaves to reflect to reflect upon the beauty of Jesus on the cross. He says of Jesus, when he was abused, verse 23, 
He did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd of your souls. Can I just give you a simple principle this morning? Kind of boil all this down. When you read the Bible, just filter it through the lens of Jesus on the cross. Just say, what does this say about God? What do I know about God? Hebrews 1 says that God reveals himself fully and finally on the cross. John 1 says that this is the word of God. Jesus himself in the flesh. That everything Jesus does is a manifestation of God's will for you. And so as you read in the far-flung places in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, would you just say, what does this say about Jesus on the cross? Would we begin to see the scriptures with cross-tented lenses? That will change things for us this morning, change things as we approach difficult texts like the one that we're in this morning. But where this meets us, Ecclesia, as people gathered in a middle school, named for a slaveholder in 21st century Princeton. As we see God more fully, as we see him more in light of Jesus, and we don't try to negotiate with different parts of the Bible and say, well, like, I, I guess that, it is what it is. So Jesus reveals God's heart for you. Jesus reveals that while we were enemies of God, that he came for us. Jesus reveals that God is not the kind of God who comes to kill his enemies, but is the God who comes and extends himself, gives of his life so that we might know him, so that he might pour his spirit upon all the earth. This is who God is. God is always for us. And he will take whatever it is upon his own shoulders, our sin and our death, to make that clear. And where this meets us here this morning, and why Peter turns from this example of slaves to the example of Jesus, is, is because Peter is inviting us to live cross-centered lives. He wants us to look at the world with the lens of the cross. And here's just a couple of things what this means. This means, first of all, to entrust the whole of your life to God. This is what Jesus does. He's talking to slaves, and he says, Christ has given you an example to follow. And the parallel between the slaves and Jesus Christ was that neither of them could do anything about their status in the world. Jesus didn't want to. And the slaves were kind of hitting the ceiling of the caste system of their society. And friends, I don't know where this meets you this morning. I don't know where you're dissatisfied I don't know where you feel like your job is not good enough or the relationships you're in are just painful and hard. I don't know where it feels like you're, you're just not getting any fulfillment out of life. I don't know where it feels like you're being done wrong. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. But can you hear me say two very important things? First of all, if there's any sort of abuse or anything like that is physically going on or verbally abusive, this is not Peter saying to you, oh, just stick it out. You hear me? It's very important. There's, God is not honored by us saying, oh, I'll, I'll just sit here and take my punishment. That's not what Peter's saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. But absent of those things, 
If you're in a situation and you just feel this longing and discontent, would you entrust your life to God? Would you say, God, I, just as you gave yourself on a cross, just as you entrusted yourself to the love of the Father, even at great pain to you, I want to entrust my life to you. Friends, just like the slaves that Peter is addressing, you may not be able to do anything about the situation that you're in. You might find it, it is a daily reality, and you wake up with it every day, and it's the first thing you think about, and it's the last thing you think about when you finally fall asleep at night. If that's you, can I just invite you? He is good. Peter describes him as the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This language of shepherding is so vibrant throughout the Bible. David says that he is our good shepherd. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, this morning, I know that some of you feel so underemployed. You feel so alone. Can I just invite you just as an act, sort of a spiritual act of trust, just say, God, I I trust you. I trust you because of who you revealed yourself to be. The second thing, Ecclesia, is that just as Jesus heals the world, just as Jesus heals the world by giving his life on the cross, so when we begin to see the world through the lens of the cross, we begin to live our lives not just for ourselves, but for others. Peter's doing this interesting thing here in the section that we're reading. He keeps switching pronouns. He goes from the first person plural, we, to the second person plural, you all. And he's talking to slaves, which is interesting. He's, he's talking to the slaves that are gathered in these congregations that he's writing to, but then he keeps switching the pronouns as if he's sort of embracing everyone listening to his message in what he's saying. And what all this means is that perhaps as the people of Jesus Christ, the person that, who gave his life on a cross, the God who loves us infinitely, perhaps as the people of that God, we are to identify our lives with those enslaved in our world. And friends, that goes everything from the most physical manifestations of injustice to those who don't have enough to eat, to those who have been systematically oppressed, to those who are still enslaved, to the spiritualizing of this oppression, to those who don't know who they are, They don't know their daughters and sons of the one God. They don't know that just like we are, that they are a royal priesthood chosen by God, beloved of him. And friends, as we identify our lives with Jesus, as we see our lives in the shape of the cross, we begin to live our lives as Jesus did for others. And friends, this morning, as we begin to do that in Ecclesia, as we begin to do that, Just as Jesus heals the world, by his stripes the world is healed, so often, so also we participate in the healing of the world by living our lives in the shape of the cross. Peter says, you are free people. Paul says it this way. He says, you used to be slaves to sin in Romans 6, but now... Now you are slaves to righteousness. And I love how Paul doesn't change the term. He says, you used to be enslaved to your own desires, to the things that you want. But now, 
Now you're enslaved to something much better. And you find that freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. That freedom is finding the fullness of life. The fullness of God is revealed to us on the cross. And this morning, Ecclesia, if you've been living as a slave to your own desires, the Holy Spirit has a word for you. He's drawing near to you this morning and saying, you no longer have to be a slave to those things. Come be a slave to righteousness. And friends, as we see the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus on the cross, we're invited to plumb the depths of a reality that we'll never find the bottom of. His depth is calling to the depths in us. And if you're just dissatisfied, you're saying there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this constant sort of roller coaster of anxiety and, and feeling like I'm just checking out and entertaining myself. Peter's got a word for you. Come see God in the shape of the cross and come receive his invitation to walk and live and see the world in the shape of the cross. Come live as slaves not to things that destroy you, not to things that belittle you, but to things that set you free. Let us pray. Beautiful Jesus, God, we are confronted with heavy words this morning. And God, your goodness sings over us. So Lord, as we gather here this morning, God, maybe, maybe some of us for the first time, just help us to see the beauty of who you are. God, that there are so many legitimate questions as we read the Bible, as we wrestle with what it is to live and move in this world. As we wrestle with some of the really difficult parts of the Bible, God, would you just help us to see your beauty shining through? Not that we're explaining it away or belittling the questions, but when we give them full voice, we see the beauty of the God who stands behind them. And God, I, I want to just pray for those who feel enslaved, feel entrapped. God, that there would just be a, a, a physical manifestation of trust here this morning. God, an extension beyond what we can do ourselves, God. Beyond our ability to change our reality and change our status. God, that you would meet us here in this place. Jesus, and you would show us that you are the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. God, that you walk with us. And God, you are inviting us to live in your way. So Lord Jesus, we pray all these things and we ask them in your beautiful name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.